Welcome to Pixelate Radio on the web at getpixelated.com. That's getpixel, the number eight, ed.com. Now, here's your host, Craig Shoemaker. Hey, welcome back to Pixelate. Let me ask you. In .NET, when you're calling a delegate, which is faster, calling an instance method or a static method? <laughs> well, to find out the answer to this and a whole lot more, we're talking to Jeffrey Richter about the performance of everyday things. For show notes, please make sure you check out getpixelated.com slash shows slash everything. And the email for the show is show at getpixelated.com. So here I am back from Tech Ed. Had a really good time. It was my first Tech Ed that I'd been to. First time actually in that area of of the country. Uh, Florida was beautiful, just a lot more green than I had ever, ever thought. But really, really hot too. So... (laughs) Uh, glad to be back in Southern California where it's not quite so humid. But I did have a really good time at the show. I had a chance to record some really fun spots with Billy Hollis and David Platt, uh, David Kelly, and Pete LePage, and just had a chance to to talk to a, a lot of fun people and and meet some of you know some of the ASP insiders and, and other people I haven't had a chance to meet in person yet. So it was a lot of fun. Something I want to draw your attention to. Um, I just released uh, this week. A series that I did on dynamic data. And while I was at TechEd, I was in Scott Hunter's uh, session on dynamic data. And, and one of the things that he was saying was that people kind of get the, the whole scaffolding and the administrative part of it um, once they first see it. That's, that's usually kind of where they, they stay. Um, and that there's a lot of sites that are going to be able to be built up around dynamic data and using the dynamic controls and the controls that can host the dynamic controls so that you can create pages that really know nothing about how the the data the information from your database is going to be rendered using dynamic data controls. So you know what? I came back and all of last week I was working on a five-part series on uh, how to customize a dynamic data website. If you go to getpixelated.com slash shows slash scorecard, I created a, uh, a Guitar Hero scorecard application uh, yeah, I know. But, I went, I, you know, it was fun. I went crazy in Photoshop and, and made a, a really, I don't know, kind of just different layout. I mean, it's, it's nothing really that special. It's, uh, it's basically a list of stuff. But the, the point of it is was to be able to, to create a layout that was much different than what you think of when you uh, see dynamic data and usually think of the scaffolding. So check out getpixelated.com slash shows slash scorecard. Um, like I said, there's a five-part screencast series that you can watch. Um, the first part of it is a demonstration of the finished product, and then we go over the configuration, restoring the database, things of that nature, and then bringing in some infrastructure controls, and then also creating the, the custom layout page. So uh, I hope you get a lot out of it if you get a chance to check it out. For today, though, we are going to be talking to um, one of the, the, the gurus in the subject of the, the .NET CLR and what really goes on down there in performance and uh, Mr. Jeffrey Richter. And I had a great time talking to him. Um, I learned a ton just from our conversation. So let's get on into it. Here's Jeffrey Richter on the performance of everyday things. Well, Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Uh, it's, it's neat to have you on. And, and in fact, in doing some research for, for having you on, I checked out uh, the Wikipedia page that's on about you. And uh, uh, among all the the software development experience and 
and authoring and speaking that you've done. It also cites that you're an international, uh, you're a member of the International Brotherhood of Magicians. What's that like? <laughs> What's that like? Um, well, I have to admit I haven't gone in a while, but uh, I've always enjoyed magic. And uh, the Brotherhood, they would meet once a month, and I used to go, and we were a bunch of you know, just. Uh, magician hobbyists. Some were professional magicians, and then we would kind of go around the table and show tricks to each other and things like that, and we would talk about the business and things like that. But I was never doing it professionally. It was always just a hobby for me. Just for fun. But it was cool to learn new magic tricks and things like that. I, I like fascinating other people. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I tried going to their homepage, but when I started to bring it up, it just disappeared. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are you fascinated by that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it totally blew me away. So you've been involved in probably well over a a dozen or more books and and probably tens of articles. And I went and I I checked out your your blog and and read your first post. And um, there was a a commenter on there that was just so excited that you had started that he was almost as if he was talking to a rock star. What what has been your experience like being in the industry for so long and being able to have such an influence on, on so many developers? Uh. Well, I mean, to me, that's really what gets me going. Um, I feel that when I write books and when I write the articles, I'm helping people. And I run into people all the time who say, uh, I got my job because I've read your book and I learned how to, you know, have a garbage collector work from that. And that just makes me feel so incredibly awesome that somebody was got a job and is making a living to support their family and children and that I helped in that. Um, sometimes I also run into people who work at companies and say, hey, this software that's running in this hospital, um, it was we learned how to do virtual memory or something from your book, and we put that into this software. And then I feel like I've had such a massive impact, um, and because it's running in a hospital, it's helping people's lives and things like that. Um, and that's, that is the main reason why I write. I'll tell you, it's definitely not for the money. <laughs> so it is definitely for... Uh, that kind of feedback that I get, where I feel like I'm really helping the world be a better place in a way. That's awesome. That's yeah. That, that's got to be an, an amazing feeling. With, with all the experience that you've had, it seems like it's been kind of a common thread that that one of the things that you're all about teaching is is what's happening underneath the hood when we're writing our software. And I was wondering, when you're out talking to people and doing consulting work and speaking, what are some of the common mistakes that you see people making? Uh, well, so. First, you know, as the years have gone by, our abstraction levels that make programmers easier have gotten more advanced. You know, I, I started programming in 1975, and I did a bunch of assembly language back then, then I did C, then I did C++, now I'm doing C Sharp with .NET. And as each of these new technologies increases, our abstraction level gets higher, which means the programmer's life is easier, but means that our compilers and tools and class libraries are doing more things for us underneath the covers. Um, So what I would say is that while this makes us very productive, a lot of programmers today don't really understand what's happening and what's underneath them. And if you don't understand the code that's being generated by the compiler and you don't understand what this API call does internally and you don't understand what this class library that you're using is really doing inside of itself, then it's hard for anybody to get some uh, understanding of the performance characteristics of that. It's also hard to debug things and, and to architect your software around it if you don't fully understand what you're building on top of. 
So I appreciate these things make us more valuable, and I certainly recommend that we use them. I mean, I've certainly adopted them over the years. But we need to understand the performance characteristics. Um, you know, I very rarely see anybody producing any kind of specification that says that when uh, somebody goes and hits our website, we need to respond to the user within five seconds. It's usually, or you know, half a second or something. It's not part of the specification usually. Uh, and fortunately, our our computers have gotten faster over the years. However, if you've taken a look back over the more recent years, you'll notice that our CPU speeds have not increased. Um, on my notebook computer, I still have a 1.8 gigahertz uh, processor. On my desktop machine, it's a 3 gigahertz processor, and it's been that way for many years. We really should have 10 gigahertz processors. So while the computers were getting faster for a while, which helped allow the programmers to not think so much about performance, they've stopped. So as there's this constant drive to put more and more features into our software and have our programs do more and more and more, our com computers themselves are not getting any faster. And so it's going to become more important going forward that programmers have a better understanding of the code that's underneath them and the performance characteristics of that code so that they can get that computer to do what they want it to do and still be responsive to end users to reply back in a reasonable amount of time. So when you're developing a, an application from scratch, is scalability and performance like one of the first things you think about, or where, where does it fall in your development continuum? Definitely falls the beginning for me, but I feel like I am somewhat unique. Uh, I tend to work a lot in, I do a lot of consulting work at Microsoft, and at Microsoft most of my consulting has been on the platform teams. So on the Windows team and on the .NET team, the common language runtime itself. So whenever you're on a platform and doing work on a platform like that, you're very conscious of performance because if the platform is slow, then everything on top of you is slow. Right. So we think uh, the teams that I've been involved with, always at the very beginning, we, uh, we prototype things, we do performance analysis on things, would it be faster to do it this way, would it be faster to do it that way, before we go and write some significant pieces of code. Right. to make sure that we can actually deliver a platform that's usable so that people can write applications that are you know, usable, I mean, time-wise, on top of that. Um, and because I've had that discipline, I tend to bring it everywhere. So even if I'm <laughs> building a website um, or some, a Windows form application or anything, I always think pretty much at the beginning, but that's because I have some classical training right. um, to think that way. So, I mean, do I think everybody should think that way? Hey, of course. Um, <laughs> it's worked well for me. It should work well for you, too. But, um, but I know it's, it's probably not that realistic. But people should try to imagine, you know, I think it's a little self-limiting, too. People will say, well, we're not going to add these features in because we can't make it perform well if we do. And they don't really know that because they haven't necessarily prototyped it, but they are kind of stifling the feature set that they could be adding into the product because they just have this, I don't know, innate sense mm -hmm. that it won't perform well. But, I mean, a 1.8 gigahertz processor is pretty powerful. And today we're getting dual-core and multi-core processors, so you can take work and you can split it up on the various CPUs. And I would love to see a lot of Windows Forms applications. How can I say this? I feel like the software is really lagging behind the hardware. Mm. The hardware companies are providing us these incredibly powerful machines today, and the software is not leveraging 
that hardware. And I would love to see new versions of software like Outlook, for example, when an email message comes in, it's automatically scanning the words in that document and doing web searches to find documents on the web that match those terms and it's doing <laughs> scans on your hard disk to find files. And I bet a lot of people who are thinking about writing the software like Outlook would say, well, there's no way we could possibly do all of that and still keep the application responsive. But it really is possible to write something like that if you architect the threads correctly and you leverage the other processors in the machine and you muck with thread priorities, for example, because a low-priority thread will never interfere with the user interface thread right. at all. So the UI will stay responsive. And you have to get a little bit creative with that. And I'm convinced that that's the world we are heading into. And, in fact, I feel like the software guys are already behind. We should have been thinking about this years ago. Right. And I think it's still years before it really hits mainstream. Well, I, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I think this is a message that's coming from a lot of different places. I, you know, obviously this is what you're saying, and I, I've heard it come from some other people as well. And I know that, you know, threading and, and dealing with multi-core processing and, and things of that nature isn't something you necessarily just kind of pick up by reading blog posts. And so, you know, you'd probably like it if people picked up your books. But in, in addition to that, I guess really the way that you're going to learn these things is to, to build out a, a proof of concept that has some meat in order to, to really deal with the problems and get into the issues of debugging. What kind of advice would you give people for saying that if you want to get your feet wet and you want to just build up a, an application to, to test and to learn these things, what, what would you point them to? What would they build that would be able to, to max the system out enough to, to make it worth it? Well, depends how you define max the system out, but if you just want to build something to start learning about how to take advantage of multi-threading and whatnot, um, build something to go and do searches against or grab data off of the web. Write a little program to go and make five or six web requests all at the same time, so they all happen to overlap, and then return the results back to you that says, um, this is the one that returns, this is the website that returned the most number of bytes, then sort the results. And then say, this is the one that returned the most number of bytes, this is the one that returned the next most number, this is the one that returned the next most number. And if you can coordinate that all with doing asynchronous I.O. operations and get the results back, if you build that little tiny thing, I don't know, maybe it would take people a day or two days at most. I don't, it's hard for me to estimate that because <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know the random skill level people in the room. Right, right. It would take me about 15 minutes to a half hour. But right. Well, you wrote the book on all uh, of it, though, so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I've been doing it for a long time. So I have a lot of experience right now, and I've, I've written that kind of at numerous. But somebody else maybe takes them a day or two days to do it. That would give them a phenomenal amount of insight, and then the architecture of the application that did that could easily be extended to do all kinds of things. You could do database searches, web searches, um, grab data off the file system, spawn threads and to do work in the background and so on, and then coordinate all the results. I mean, that's what it all boils down to. Right. You spawn all these asynchronous operations. You need to coordinate when all the results come back in, then process those results, and then show the results to somebody. So write a little something that does all that, and then that architecture that you wrote there can easily be extended to do anything. Very cool. Yeah. All right, people, there's your, there's your marching orders. And, uh, Write a blog post about yeah. it once you've done it so we can uh, <laughs> learn from your experiences. So uh, you just did a, a talk recently at Dev Discovery called The Performance of Everyday Things. 
I thought that was kind of interesting because it, it sort of hinted to the fact that we as developers do things every day and, and maybe aren't aware of some of the performance implications that, that go on behind the scenes. Is, is there a, a lot more to it than, than maybe what we might think at first? Well, yeah, I think so. The talk was, as you say, there are certain things that we developers use all the time, every day, without really giving a lot of thought behind it. Um, that was the first time I ever taught that session, uh, and I, I asked the people at the end how much they liked it, and they said it went really, really well. The other thing that I did was not only did I explain or just show this was faster than this, but I also went into the internals of the CLR to explain why one thing is faster than the other thing. Um, so, But I, I did also point out in that talk that I am a firm believer in if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of thing. So if your software is running fine as is, I even say this at the beginning of the session, if your software is running fine as is and you don't have a performance problem, then just leave it alone. Um, and the things that I showed in the session, um, you could either use them. I guess where it became most useful to me, what I found, is that once you understand, like can, using a string builder concatenate strings is much quicker than using a string, mm -hmm. then what I do in my code is because I know these things now, when I start writing my code, I use that as part of the architecture from the beginning. Right. So rather than seeing I have a perf problem and going and fix it, in many cases, um, in some cases, things I showed was actually less code to do it even faster. So it was even the simpler way, uh, and the result turned out to be faster. And if you know that ahead of time, certainly you would code that way. You would want to do it the simpler way, especially if you knew it was faster than coding it up the more complicated way. So. It would help people who had performance problems. They could use some of the stuff in the session to fix it. And if you didn't have a performance problem, it would help you in the future to know these things so that it would just direct you as you wrote new code to start doing the right thing. Right. Can you tell us about some of those other things that you were doing that ended up being less code and even faster? Uh, well, let's see. It's, uh, there were, it was a grab bag of various different topics um, that I were presented. And... I can remember saying that in the class, but I'm not exactly sure what <laughs> thing I said it for. <laughs> um, we can just make something up. Things, uh, the various things I talked about, I just talked about um, method calls in general. For example, a lot of times people ask the question of, um, is it quicker to call a static method or is it quicker to call an instance method or a virtual method and so on. And some things are, you know, so similar to each other, it really doesn't matter. It could be the calling an instance method is slower than a static method, but only just a tiny bit slower that it's not even worth considering. Right. So uh, I, I have, uh, in the class, what I do is I have all these pieces of code, and then I time each one. And I also show the number of garbage collections that occurred for each of those as well. And then we analyze the results after it's all done the running. Um, so... On my machine right now, I'm running the method call example, and calling through a delegate is certainly slower than uh, not avoiding the delegate, as uh, anybody would expect, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So you should try to avoid delegates if possible. Um, calling static and instance methods are very fast. Calling virtual and interface methods, they go to an extra level of indirection, so that's a little bit slower. You should try to avoid it um, in, in favor of static and instance methods. Um, calling through a delegate is... Um, a good bit slower, so something you should really try to avoid. And then the other thing I show in the class, though, is calling through reflection. And reflection is so slow in the class <laughs> that I actually iterate through it, um, well, so slow, period, that when I show it in the room, I actually do it 1,000th uh, the number of times I make the other method calls. Otherwise, the same test 
would run for days. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, it, what are you doing? It really in demonstrates very clearly how bad uh, calling through uh, reflection is. What's, what are you doing via reflection to make it so slow? Well, it's just uh, calling on a member, memberinfo.invoke, that API in the runtime. I mean, reflection is a very powerful mechanism in the runtime. It allows you to f discover all kinds of things at runtime, which you did not know at compile time. Right. And that's incredibly useful for creating dynamic programs or applications that, have comp that add in components. Maybe third parties create components that plug into them. Um, the downside of reflection, there's two downsides of reflection. The first is that you lose type safety when compiling because all you, every, to, in your code, everything just looks like an object. It's an object, it's an object, it's an object. You don't know that it's actually a foobar or a, a zip zap or something like that. So you can't code directly to the, the methods of that class, only to an object. And then, so then we use the reflection APIs in order to say to them, well, here's the name of the function I really want to call. And so you give the name as a string, reflection has to then look up the string, then it has to figure out what the parameters are, and then convert your parameters you're passing into the actual parameters. There could be an error there, maybe you pass too many parameters or too few, or they're the wrong data type. So reflection code has to validate all of that, and then throw an exception if anything is wrong. Then it has to go and build up the stack if everything is correct, and then it has to go and call the method. Well, there's a phenomenal amount of work. There's also security checks that are done. There's a, just a phenomenal amount of work that happens in the runtime to call something with reflection, and therefore a reflection call is orders of magnitude, several orders of magnitude more expensive than just making a regular call. Hmm. So um, if you're going to call a method by reflection multiple times, another thing I show in my session is that you can create a delegate. And once you've used reflection to find the method you want to call, you can call delegate.createDelegate. This is a function that very few people know about, that most people have probably never called it in their life. But it's a way to say, hey, if by reflection I found some function, let me go and create a delegate to that function. Once you've done that, you've kind of strongly bound to it now. And now calling through that delegate to that function multiple times is going to be incredibly fast, just as fast as calling to a delegate which is still slower okay. than calling a regular instance or static method, but is several orders of magnitude faster than calling through the reflection directly. Hmm. Now, so what about, I show all that in the class. And what about dynamic instances like activator create object? Well, activator create object is, um, is slow initially. Then you've created the object, and that returns the reference to the object back to you. So... That certainly does take time. Also, it calls a constructor by way of reflection, too. So it has to check constructor parameters and so on. Um, and then once you have the object back, you can either call that object using reflection APIs, which is, again, incredibly slow, or if you know that that object implements an interface or an abstract base class that has some virtual methods on it, then you would cast it to that. And if the cast is successful, then all your calls to that object are going to be very fast. So that would be a best practice. Right. And I do that lots. I call activator create instance. It's activator create instance, mm, by the way. Right. Um, I call that once, and then after that, I cast it to an interface or a base class, and then I call methods on it, and then everything else is very fast. So when when we're if you're just calling regular methods or doing field access, is is there anything? Any special gotchas you need to look out for, or is the talk basically to show the the progression of how things get slower or faster depending on what you're doing? The talk is basically to say there are things that we use every day 
and most people never think about the performance ramification of those things. I mean, if you ask anybody, is reflection slow, they'll say yes, right? Because right? they've heard, right, oh, reflection is slow. But then if you say to them, well, how slow is it? Then they say, well, I don't know because I've never measured it, right? So the, I guess the main purpose of my talk is to say, here are things that people do every day. And I've actually taken the time to write code to go and measure it. Hmm. And here is that code. Let's go and actually measure it. So when you see not only is reflection slow, but it's thousands of times slower than just a regular method call, then you can really start to – you can take that information and include it in your engineering, the right. architecture of your application. Maybe there's a part of your program where you say, well, the performance here is not sensitive. doesn't matter. So if it is several orders of magnitude slower, it's only going to happen once every second or once every half hour. And so who cares? I'll just call through reflection. Right. Or you can say, well, this is a performance-tensitive loop here. I got lots of – uh, threads that are jumping into this loop all at the same time, and they're holding a lock, and so I want that lock to be held for as short a time as possible, so I better not use reflection here. It would be better to do something else because reflection is going to really increase my time by orders of magnitude. It's one thing to know, to say to yourself something is slow or fast. Actually, that's not even that useful. You have to say something is slow or fast compared to something else. Right. You have to compare it to something else. And then even that is not that useful. You have to say <laughs> how much faster or slower is it than the something else. You know, right. Let's not optimize to save a microsecond. Something might be a microsecond faster, but how many hours of my life should I spend on that? So when you sat down to measure everything, were you surprised by any of the results? Um, I was surprised that calling through a, a calling a static method to a delegate was slower than calling through an instance method of a delegate, because instance methods always have the additional this parameter on them. So really, calling an instance method, you always have to pass one additional parameter, so that you would think would make it slower. Right. And yet, calling through a static method, which doesn't have it through a delegate, was actually slower than the instance method call. And, uh, in fact, I couldn't figure out why that was, so I actually went to some friends on the Common Language Runtime team, and I spoke to them about it. And um, they said that what happens is delegates are optimized for instance method calls internally in the runtime. Okay. And what they have to do is they put the this parameter on the stack, and then if they find out if it's a static method, then they go and remove it. Oh, really? And so that's what took the extra time. And so that was interesting to me. I thought that was really interesting. Huh. Um, also, with working with arrays, I mean, programmers work with arrays all the time. And the runtime is highly, highly, highly optimized for single-dimension, zero-based arrays. There are special IL instructions for that, which produce special CPU instructions typically. And so working with a zero-based array, the single-dimension, is incredibly fast. And once you go to either a multi-dimension array or a single-dimension array that's not zero-based, right. like maybe it goes from 2000 to 2010, then uh, the performance of accessing the elements of that array goes significantly downward. Hmm. Um, and I, I can't remember the numbers right off the top of my head. I have to run the test, but it takes time to run the test. <laughs> yeah. uh, and um, that was interesting to me. And another thing is that the runtime validates all array accesses. So whenever you're indexing into an array and you say, well, I want element five, the runtime always has code that checks to see if there are at least five elements in the array. Is index five valid or not? Okay. And if not, then it would throw an exception. Right. So those 
if you are accessing elements of an array in a loop, which is almost always the case, right? You normally create arrays because you want to manipulate the objects in a loop. Then every single round robin through the loop, iteration through the loop, is causing this array checking to occur. Right. And that can really slow things down. So I show in my class how you could use some unsafe code to really get some <laughs> better performance out of that. Um, and, you know, you do have to do array bounds checking, but I come from a C, C++ background where I've always had to do the correct array bounds checking for a single dimension array. It's not that hard, but right. it, it tells the, the compiler and the jitter to remove the array bounds checking. So that can really get your performance up higher. Interesting. Um, also, C-sharp in unsafe code supports a stack alloc feature where you can create an array on the stack rather than create an array that's on the heap. Right. And then if it's not on the heap, then there's no garbage collection pressure and you get fewer GCs occurring. So I also show that in the class, too, how to allocate an array on the stack, then manipulate that without doing the bounds checking at all. And, of course, my performance is significantly better manipulating that ray, although I'm doing some unsafe code there, but it's not difficult unsafe code. Right. And then when the method returns, the array just immediately gets freed up. So there's no object on the heap. There's no garbage collection that has to get rid of it. Very nice. Um, so it, know, It's goodness. <laughs> it was, would that be something you'd uh, ever blog about? Um, yeah, that is something I would blog about. I've written about it in my book. It's in okay. the arrays chapter. I mentioned it there. Which which book? Um, and, uh, the CLR VSC Sharp book. Okay. We'll make sure to point to that and in the I, show notes. Yeah, and I show these things. Uh, I show a comparison of these things in that book. If I was working with an array, I would use safe code. I would default to using safe code. And then if I was noticing performance problems, then I would switch to unsafe code. Yeah, that Once would be one of those you, code, you have to really yeah, wait till you need flow. it. Yeah. Now, one of the other questions you probably have an answer to that I've seen people uh, pose, and, and I don't know that I, at least I've ever really seen a definitive answer. You were talking about the, the this keyword. If you're writing code inside of a method and you're calling, you know, a private local method, if you do this dot method name or you just do method name, is there any performance uh, difference in, in those two no. nomenclatures? Okay. No. No, that's identical. Okay. Yeah, that's just the compiler lets you leave off the this dot, but then it logically puts it in. So it's, it's so just the, the compiler syntax. Yeah, the IELTS is the you leave it off. Here, I did, I remembered the thing now that produces the less code and runs faster. Okay. So I can do that. And this is uh, for loops. Uh, it's about just looping through things. So what a lot of people do is they use the for each statement in C Sharp. The for each statement, you know, you know, just to remind you quickly of the syntax, you say for each uh, type name variable that's of that type name in and then some variable that represents a collection. And that collection can be an array or a list or a dictionary or really any kind of collection at all, link list, a tree, doesn't matter. Right. And the for each statement in C Sharp is actually pretty expensive. It's a very simple syntax, and programmers tend to love it, so they use it a lot. But the compiler produces a lot of code with for each. Um, first, it takes the collection object and it calls a method on it called getEnumerator. That method getEnumerator internally news up an object on the heap. So in order to iterate through elements of a collection, you are creating an object on the heap, which at first really isn't intuitive to people. And of course, that means it has to be garbage collected in the future and so on, so it's not ideal right. in terms of perf. Then, for every iteration through the loop, you have to take that enumerator object and you have to call move next on it, and then you have to call current on it. So there are two method calls in the iteration. 
So whenever you use for each, you're allocating an object on the heap, and then for each iteration, there are two method calls that are occurring. So it's very simple code, but it's actually a lot of stuff is happening underneath the covers there. Okay. If you know that your collection is an array or a list or something that can be indexed into like that, then it's going to be faster for you to write a for loop, not a for each loop, but a regular for loop where you just have your integer x go from zero to the length of the collection mm -hmm. and then just add one each time and pull the item out. With the for loop, you will not be creating an object on the heap and you're just you know, pulling the element right out of the collection. In the case of a list, it is actually a method call to go and pull that out, but it's one method call to pull that out rather than two. Right. Okay. So you've avoided the object creation, and you've avoided at least one method call inside a loop, which is good. Uh, and then the last one is in .NET 2.0, on a lot of collection classes like list and array, Microsoft added for each methods to those classes. So not the for each statement, but a for each method. Okay. And the for each method, you pass into it um, a name of a function. Right. And you can use an anonymous method there or a Lambda expression there in C Sharp 3.0. And that code internally knows how to walk through the internal data structures of the collection and call the, your method back for each item. Right. And so now your code is really simple because you don't even write the loop. All you do is you say <laughs> you know, list variable dot for each, and then you give the code that you want to execute for each item. You don't write a loop at all. That So it's very simple. It's one line of code now instead of a loop. Inside there, they do have the loop, of course, inside that method. Right. And then that loop calls your callback method back once for each thing, but it does it in a very high-performance way. And so this is the thing I show where you write just one line of code, and it actually runs faster than the other two examples. Wow. Yeah. That's excellent. Do you have anything on... Uh... I mean, that, that's pretty easy how you explained it, but I think I've seen um, some blog posts out there. If, if you have one, I'll make sure to link to that as well. Um, well, I mean, I have my blog on the Wintelec website. Right. I'm not as active as I should be. <laughs> all right. That's true for us all. The best way for people to see this is to come to the Discovery Conference, because I'll do it again in Redmond in August. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we will catch up with you soon. All right. Thank you. I'd like to thank Jeffrey for spending some time with us. If you want to find out some more about him and, and just read what he's been up to lately, uh, aside from his many books, you can check out his blog at shrinkster.com slash Z-A-G, that's Zag, Z-A-G. If you want to see him speak, you can check out DevScovery, and if you go to devscovery.com, you can see the sessions that he's going to be doing. Um, it's going to be August 19th through the 21st at, uh, at, at Microsoft in Redmond. So uh, thanks a lot for checking out the show, and this is Craig Shoemaker. I'll talk to you soon. Pixelate Radio, on the web at getpixelated.com. That's get, pixel, the number eight, ed.com. All rights reserved, copyright 2008. Infragistics, powering the presentation layer. Infragistics.com.